Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 7, or I'm sorry, Revelation 17. We're further along than Revelation 17. And then once you find that, if you could then go to Genesis 11, that would be great. We're going to start off in Genesis 11 uh, this morning. The, uh, you know, we're doing a verse-by-verse uh, study through the book of uh, Revelation as we continue in our study of this book. We come this morning to Revelation chapter 17, and my goal is to try to cover uh, the full length of this amazing chapter, and the title of the message is The Judgment of Babylon the Harlot. The Judgment of Babylon the Harlot. Uh, But first of all, just kind of going back to the book of uh, Genesis, after God destroyed the earth with the flood, uh, God spoke to Noah and his sons in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 7, and he said, and I quote, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Essentially, God is commanding Noah and his sons to reproduce and to spread out and to swarm the earth with descendants. Yet, in Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, we learn that the world's population, being of one language, found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And in verse 3 of Genesis 11, we're told that they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God wanted them scattered abroad. They don't want that to happen. What they're wanting to do is to stay together and to unite in one purpose, in opposition to the plan of God for the purpose of making for themselves a name. There's nothing more dangerous than this. We often bemoan how divided our world is today, but think about the alternative. There's one thing worse than a fallen world being divided, and that is a fallen world being united in one false religion that exchanges God's grace for self-sufficiency and human effort, which exchanges his will for man's will, and which exchanges his glory for man's glory, which is precisely why God responds the way that he does here in Genesis 11. Look at verse 5 and following. The text says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they begin to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth 
And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. What we have here is man's first attempt to come together in a one-world religion characterized by human wisdom and by self-effort, and God brings a stop to it. But there is coming a day, and we see this in the book of Revelation, when mankind will come even closer to this goal of achieving global unity in a new version of Babylon, which Leon Morris, the commentator, describes as civilized man organized in godless community. And we see Babylon at its apex moment here in Revelation 17, and you can now turn back to Revelation 17. We're going to see Babylon at its apex here in this future tribulation period accounted for in Revelation 17, and then we will see it once again destroyed by God, only this time for good. Now, before the seven bowls of God's wrath were poured out by the seven angels back in Revelation 16, we saw in Revelation 14, 8, how an angel flies across the sky in mid-heaven saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And then when the seventh bowl of God's wrath is poured out just prior to the second coming of Christ, we read in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 19 these words, And Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And in Revelation 17 that we come to today, John tells us about a very graphic vision that he is treated to, which shows us how this Babylon meets its end in utter futility, just like it did all the way back in Genesis 11. The way we're going to break down our study of this chapter is we'll observe five developments, five developments in John's vision of the judgment of Babylon the harlot. And the first of these developments begins in verse 1. Let's word it this way. An angel invites John to witness the judgment of the great harlot. An angel invites John to witness the judgment of the great harlot or of Babylon the great harlot. Observe what John says in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. We will see beyond any shadow of a doubt that the harlot in this vision is none other than Babylon the great, and she is depicted by this angel as a harlot, as the great harlot. So right away, we get an idea of what God thinks of Babylon. And we also see its contrast to the church, right? The church is the bride of Christ, yet this harlot in this vision represents Babylon, which is the antithesis of the church. 
It's the opposite of everything that the church of Jesus Christ stands for. In Revelation 21.9, we're going to see the bride of the Lamb represented as the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And this new Jerusalem represents true community organized by God in the worship of God. But here in Revelation 17, we see the harlot represented as the opposite of that. And just as the church is a religious entity, so we should see this harlot as representing a form of religion as well. In one sense, this harlot represents the spirit of every false religion of every age, which will have its heyday in the coming tribulation period at the end of the age. In a more specific sense, this harlot represents Babylon, which in the future will become the Mecca of the one world religion that replaces God's grace with self-sufficiency and human effort, which replaces God's will with man's will, and which replaces God's glory with man's glory. We see a number of occasions in the Old Testament when the imagery of a harlot is used to convey religious unfaithfulness. At times we see the Old Testament prophets speaking of Israel acting like a harlot in her unfaithfulness to God. In Nahum chapter 3 verse 4, we see the pagan city of Nineveh spoken of as a charming harlot, quote, who sells nations by her harlotries, unquote. In Isaiah 23, verses 16 and 17, we see Isaiah speaking of the pagan city of Tyre as a harlot who plays the harlot with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. So when you see this chapter, Revelation 17, speaking of the great harlot, don't think of someone necessarily who is engaging only in literal harlotry. But think of a system that operates in disregard for God and behaves in unfaithfulness to him. Think of a system that prostitutes itself, selling away everything that is right and noble for power and luxury and the approval of men. And then realize how often it is true that one of the ways that false religions and evil societies prostitute themselves is by approving of and providing for all sorts of vile and immoral behavior for its people. As for this harlot in Revelation 17.1, she is described as the great harlot who sits on many waters. And we'll see later in this chapter what these waters represent. In verse 2, the angel speaks of those who commit immorality with the great harlot. He speaks of her, look at verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. In other words, this woman, this harlot has seduced everyone from the most powerful people on earth down to the common person 
to engage in wicked ways with her to such a degree that they're said to be not only drinking the wine of her immorality, but drunk with the wine of her immorality. And this angel is saying to John, come, let me show you the judgment of this great harlot who has so corrupted the people of the earth in this way. And then with that invitation stated, the angel then takes John to see the vision that he's just invited him to. And this brings us to the next development in John's account of his vision of the judgment of Babylon, the harlot. Number two, the angel shows John the vision of the harlot and the beast. Observe what John says in verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. It will be obvious to us as we work through this chapter that this beast is the Antichrist. And here John sees this harlot seated on this beast. Speaking of this beast, John tells us that he was scarlet in color, which some take to just be the color of blood. Others take it to be the color of sin, while some take it to represent splendor. John also describes this beast as being full of blasphemous names. These names would include more than simply names that belittle the true God, but would also include arrogant names and titles wherein the beast is attributing attributes to himself, descriptions to himself that rightly only belong to God alone. And this beast is full of these blasphemies tattooed all over his being. John also describes this beast as having seven heads and ten horns, just like the beast of Revelation 13 did. And we will see in the coming verses what these heads and horns represent. If you're asking, what do these heads and horns represent? The angel knows that you're asking that question and will tell you what they mean later in this chapter. As for the woman who is sitting on this beast, John describes her in verse 4. Look at what he says in verse 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. The fact that this woman is clothed with purple and scarlet says something about her power and wealth and privilege at this particular moment. Purple was the color of royalty. So this woman seems to be doing quite well for herself at this particular moment in the vision. John also describes this woman as being adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Literally, the word for gold shows up twice. It's inside the word adorned, or that's translated adorned. Literally, John is saying that this woman is made golden with gold. 
meaning that this woman has more than simply one or two pieces of gold on her person. She's covered with gold in various ways from head to toe, as well as with precious stones and pearls. Her adornment with such things is gaudy, and it's designed to amplify her appeal and attractiveness to others. In the second half of verse 4, John notices that this woman was having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations. The word abomination speaks of things that are repulsive, detestable to God. And in this gold cup are also the unclean things of her immorality. And this is not merely metaphor here. While the unfaithfulness of this woman amounts to spiritual unfaithfulness to God. This unfaithfulness expressed itself in many different forms of actual sexual immorality. And a person, whether they claim to know the Lord or not, is never more like this harlot than when they are engaging in sexual immorality. It's a terrible irony looking at this passage that all of such filthy things are contained in an otherwise beautiful golden cup. An unsuspecting person would see the beautiful cup and assume that what is inside that cup must be of the very best of substances. Yet this cup contains nothing but unclean and filthy immoralities. And the fact that these filthy things are housed inside of a beautiful golden cup does not make them any less filthy and abominable and disgusting to God. And we do well as Christians to be warned by such an image. There are many things that our world today will try to offer to us in a golden cup Their hope is that we will be so enamored with the golden cup that we forget how abominable its contents really are. But don't let yourself be deceived by the golden cups of this world. Filth in a golden cup is still filth. The world can dress up sin with beautiful garb adorned with precious stones, and they can put it in a golden cup, but it is still an abomination to God. Who is this harlot adorned in this way, holding this golden cup? John says in verse 5, And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Some of your translations handle the name of this woman in different ways. And the difference rides on what do we do with the word mystery that is here in the text. Some translations actually include the word mystery inside the name of this woman. But the New American Standard and I believe the English Standard Version have her name being Babylon the Great. And the word mystery is simply used to introduce the name. Either way you read this, John's point, I think, is the same. Babylon the Great, being the great harlot, 
is something that can only be known by special revelation from God. And John and we are being let in on this mystery that Babylon the Great is this harlot who is seated on this beast. Some take John's use of the word mystery here to indicate that his readers are supposed to understand that Babylon the Great is like code for something else, like perhaps Rome, which is an earlier version of the Babylon to come. And there may be value to that perspective. Whatever this harlot is, it connects back to the original effort of mankind at Babel to unite in one purpose behind a religion characterized by self-sufficiency and by human effort, a religion that replaces God's will with man's will, a religion that is not about glorifying God, but about glorifying man. For now, though, John sees the name on this woman's forehead, which reads Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And the fact that she is the mother of harlots indicates that she is the ultimate in unfaithfulness to God. And all other harlotries descend from her. And bearing the title of the mother of the abominations of the earth, John is observing that all detestable and disgusting acts of unfaithfulness to God descend from this woman that will come into her prime at the end of the age during the coming tribulation period. When you look at all the varied false world religions that abound even in our world today, they seem at odds with one another and seem to spring from different sources. But the truth is, we learn here, they all come from the same source. There is a paradigm that lies behind all these different religions. And that paradigm is they replace God's grace and mercy with self-sufficiency and human effort. They replace God's will with man's will. And they replace God's glory with man's glory. And this is the harlot who is behind all of that in every false religion. This is the wizard behind the curtain of all false religions. John notices something about how this woman is carrying herself in a way that shows that she's clearly drunk. He says in verse 6, And I saw the woman drunk with what? The blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. This shows us that this harlot is a vicious killer who despises those who follow Christ and she presides over their murder. In fact, she has gorged herself on their deaths, making her drunk with their blood. In the mind of this particular harlot, the one thing she cannot stand is someone who rejects her and refuses to commit immorality with her. In her way of thinking, you either sleep with her or she will kill you and drink your blood for dinner. So this is the vision 
John sees of the harlot and the beast. But what does it mean? Well, John is wondering the same thing as well. And the angel will satisfy his curiosity and ours. And this brings us to the third development in John's account of his vision of the judgment of Babylon, the harlot. Number three, the angel explains to John the mystery of the beast and the harlot. The angel explains to John the mystery of the beast and the harlot. Observe how John responds when he sees this woman seated atop this beast. He says in verse 6, When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the word translated wondered here should be translated as marveled. John is marveling with amazement at what he is seeing, and there is perplexity mixed in with his amazement. And what is he perplexed about? What is he wondering about? Well, for one, he may be wondering about the full extent of what this woman represents. He may be wondering at the relationship between this woman and the beast that she is seated upon. Also, this angel, remember, had told John that he was going to show him the judgment of the great harlot, right? Yet John isn't seeing any judgment at all. So far, it looks to John like this harlot is doing just fine and thriving in luxury as she's being carried along by this beast. And so he wonders. And the angel observes John looking so amazed and perplexed. So observe what he does in verse 7. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery. Wouldn't that be great if whenever we're doing Bible study and we're perplexed at a passage, we had an angel come and say to us, what are you wondering about? I will tell you the interpretation of this. That's what John is getting the benefit of here. The angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The angel is assuring John that John doesn't have to depend on his own resources to figure out what this vision means. This angel will tell him what it means, which is what we then find in the following verses. So in verse 8, the angel begins to give him the interpretation and he focuses his attention first on giving John an interpretation of the beast. Observe what he says to John here in verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction. So there you go. A clear interpretation of the vision that John is seeing this angel is trying to make things clear to John, and he tells him that the beast he's looking at was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss. What does this expression mean? Well, you will recall back in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3, that John described the beast in that chapter saying one of his heads was as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. In Revelation 13, 14, John speaks of the beast 
who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So it's obvious here that this is the same beast that was seen and spoken about in Revelation 13. And it seems that this beast is being described here as one who was once alive and now is dead from a fatal wound that he received, explained back in chapter 13, and he is about to come up out of the abyss. It seems that this angel is taking the apostle John back to the midpoint of the tribulation period when the beast is slain and then resurrected and then comes forth out of the abyss. As for what the beast does when he comes up out of the abyss, we were told back in Revelation 11, verse 7, you can write that reference down, that when the two witnesses of God, you remember them, when they had completed their testimony, Revelation eleven seven says, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them. And when we were back in Chapter 11, we observe that this event likely happens right around the midpoint of the tribulation period. So to put these things in order, the beast evidently rises to some level of prominence on the world stage and comes to dominion. He receives a fatal wound. He dies and for a time is not. But then he is raised and comes up out of the abyss, empowered by hell itself. He kills God's two witnesses and then goes into the temple and demands that the world worship him as God. And his grip on the world goes to a whole new level after that. Yet, while this beast will have his heyday for a spell, because of all of this, ultimately this angel says, in the middle of verse 8, that he will go to destruction, a destruction that we will see described in chapter 19. But in the meantime, observe the response of the world to this resurrection of the beast in the second half of verse 8. The text says, And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not, and will come. The elect on earth will not be deceived or fooled by this resurrected Antichrist, but the unregenerate will be deceived. And John says at the end of verse 8 that they will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come, that he was alive and then seemingly dead and now alive again. And once again, this takes us back to Revelation 13, where John speaks of the same thing. In Revelation 13, 3, after the beast has his fatal wound healed, John says, his fatal wound was healed. This is verse 3 of chapter 13. His fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast And who is able to wage war with him? So what this angel is saying here in Revelation 17 explains the beast that the harlot is seated upon. But what about the heads and the horns 
on this beast? What do they represent? This brings us to the fourth development in John's account of his vision of the judgment of Babylon the harlot. Number four, the angel tells John the meaning of the beast's heads and horns. The angel tells John the meaning of the beast's heads and horns. Speaking of the heads and the horns of the beast, the angel speaks to John in verse 9 and says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And guys, when he prefaces what he's about to say by saying, Here is the mind which has wisdom, this angel is alerting John to the fact that what he's about to say requires careful thought and supernatural insight to understand. That he's about to say something challenging and difficult. And not surprisingly, commentators have spent the last 2,000 years struggling to understand what this angel says. And I need to tell you that of the probably about 20 commentators that I study in preparation for these messages through Revelation, I didn't find many of them, if any, who are dogmatic in their opinions on this matter, which ought to make us want to tread very humbly through these verses. But the angel begins his interpretation by saying the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. So we read that and wonder what are the seven mountains on which this harlot is seated. And some interpreters say that this must be a reference to Rome, which was often described in ancient times as sitting on seven hills. It's almost too much of a coincidence. And commentators who do make this connection to Rome are probably right in their suggestion, at least on some level, It was certainly true that Rome in John's day was the first century version of the Babylon to come. But the angel continues in verse 10 and says that uh, what I really mean is they're more than mountains. He says in verse 10, and they, which are the seven heads, which are the mountains on which the woman sits, are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Some commentators take these seven kings spoken of here as representing seven Roman emperors from Caesar Augustus forward all the way to John's day and then even perhaps beyond, but when you look at the emperors who reigned from Caesar Augustus forward, there's no way to make the number of the emperors work with the numbers that this angel gives here. Still others would understand these kings as representing the great empires of the world in biblical history, and I think this view is more likely to be correct. From John's vantage point of history, Many commentators point out that five empires have arisen that have had significant bearing on the people of God, and they have fallen 
already prior to John's day. These five empires are the Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Grecian Empire. All five which have fallen by the time Revelation 17 is happening in John's day. The angel then says in verse 10, one is, which would be referring to what empire? Rome, which stood in John's day. The angel then speaks of another that has not yet come. And that seems to be referring to the kingdom of the beast or of the Antichrist. When this king comes, the angel says he must remain a little while, indicating that his kingdom, though it will be certainly powerful, it will be short-lived. Keep in mind that these seven kings are represented as mountains, which speaks of something that is established and which endures So it's not much of a stretch to see these seven kingdoms personified here as kings, six of which represented earlier versions of the kingdom of the Antichrist, with the seventh being the ultimate and the final expression of the power of the Antichrist on earth. As for the Antichrist or the beast, the seventh empire or king look at verse 11 the beast the angel says the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction so the beast himself according to this angel is an eighth king and he's one of the seven and all God's people said what That's what they say. I mean, how can this beast be one of the seven and yet also an eighth king? Well, he is the seventh king with the kingdom. We've already seen that, making him and his empire one of the seven. But when he dies and is resurrected, he comes forth a darker and more demonic version of himself And his kingdom becomes something observably different and more advanced in evil. In some ways, this resurrected beast or antichrist is the same person. In other ways, he is very different, now fully possessed by Satan himself. After his mortal wound and his resurrection, the next phase of his kingdom is so qualitatively different and darker that the seventh king or kingdom becomes an eighth because it's different. Yet ultimately, this angel says he goes to destruction. And again, we'll see how this is true in Revelation 19. So this is the angel's explanation of the seven heads. But what do the ten horns of the beast represent? We know that throughout Scripture, horns represent power royal power. So we're not surprised in verse 12 to hear this angel interpreter say to John, look at verse 12, the 10 horns which you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. 
These are the kings who will rule in some kind of alliance with the Antichrist. They will rule at the pleasure of the Antichrist. They are kings who initially will not have a kingdom, but then they will receive authority from the beast to serve as kings with him for a brief spell. Who are these kings? We don't know. I agree with Robert Mounts, the commentator, when he says, and I quote, the complete fulfillment of the imagery awaits the final curtain of the human drama. Whoever these kings are, they will reign with the beast, this angel says, for one hour, which means that their stint as rulers with the beast will be painfully short and brought to an abrupt end. Speaking of these kings, this angel says in verse 13, these kings have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. These kings will not be divided in any way. They'll be single-minded in their devotion and in their mission to give all of their power and all of their authority to the beast. They will exist to do the bidding of the Antichrist and to serve his purposes, whatever they are. These will be the ultimate yes men for the Antichrist. As for the ultimate fate of these 10 kings, the angel tells us, and this, I got to give you a spoiler alert here. If you don't want to know how the story finishes in Revelation, close your ears while I read this verse because it tells us how it's going to end. In verse 14, the angel says, these will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. This promise points us to Revelation 17, alerting us to the fact that these kings will join the Antichrist in his war against Jesus Christ. And they will be defeated by Jesus Christ because he's the ultimate Lord and king. And we're told here who will be with the lamb, who will be with Jesus in this great battle. The angel says, and those who are with him, in other words, with the lamb, are the called and chosen and faithful. Guess what? That's us. And notice the sequence of the descriptions here. We who have believed in Jesus are the called, meaning we're called by God to salvation. We are the chosen meaning that we're elected by God to salvation. Those are things God did. And then thirdly, we are faithful or believing, and we're made faithful in believing by God himself. These first two of the three acts involved in our salvation happen outside of ourselves. They're God's actions, which result in us then believing in Christ and being faithful to him and then being with him at his second coming when he overcomes the beast and these 10 kings. So far in this chapter, we see a lot of foreshadowing. We're told in verse 8 that the beast goes to destruction. We're told in verse 11 that the beast goes to destruction once again. We're told in verse 10 that the seventh king will only last for a little while and in verse 12, we're told that the 10 kings will rule with the beast for only one hour. And here in verse 14, we are told that Jesus will overcome them all in a war. 
Yet before the beast and these ten kings go to destruction and experience this great defeat, they're going to turn against Babylon and destroy her. And this brings us to the final development in John's account of his vision of the judgment of Babylon, the great harlot. Number five, the angel tells John how the beast will destroy the harlot. More fully, we can say the angel tells John how the beast and his kings will destroy the harlot. The angel continues speaking to John. Observe what John says here in verse 15. And he, the angel, said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This indicates that the harlot, which we know as Babylon, will hold great sway over the nations of the world. But then notice what happens and how this alliance of the harlot with the beast begins to fall apart. In verse 16, the angel says to John, and the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. The New American Standard translation says the ten horns which you saw and the beast. But the New King James and the King James say the ten horns which you saw on the beast. But the ultimate meaning is the same either way. These kings always act in harmony with the beast. So when they act against the harlot here, they're carrying out the will of the beast. And there are five awful outcomes here predicted for this harlot First, she will become hated by the beast and his ten kings. Second, they will make her desolate, meaning they're going to plunder all of her wealth until she is left with nothing. Third, they will strip her naked of her purple and scarlet apparel and precious stones adorning her body. Fourth, they will eat her flesh. How gruesome is this? And then fifthly, they will burn what's left of her with fire. This is stark language that describes the gruesome end of this harlot, which we have learned is Babylon the Great. To the untrained observer in this future day, it will seem that these kings are acting of their own free will and turning against the harlot in this way, but... We all know already theologically that God is always working invisibly behind the scenes and turning the hearts of men in the direction that he would have them go, even the hearts of rebellious men. Observe what the angel says in verse 17, for God, why will they do this to the harlot? Verse 17, for God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The unity of these kings behind the Antichrist along with their joining the Antichrist in turning against the harlot and destroying her, all of that is happening under the sovereign control of God. These kings 
along with the Antichrist, think that they are acting freely, but they're merely carrying out the will of the God that they hate. I love what the commentator Dennis Johnson says on this score. Listen to what he says. Quote, if there is one thing in all the world that the rebel kings do not want to do, it is the purpose of God. But in doing what they want to do, hating the harlot and ripping her to pieces, they are doing precisely what God wants. Unwittingly carrying out his judgment. To make sure that John and we understand who this harlot is, who's being ripped apart and eaten and burned with fire, the angel says in verse 18, the final verse of the chapter, the woman whom you saw, in other words, the great harlot is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So the angel's language here makes it very clear that this harlot is a city, the great city. This could be Rome, as many commentators suggest. Or the city being referred to here could be a revived Babylon that sits on the banks of the Euphrates River, just like ancient Babylon. Or it could be some other location. But wherever the particular city will be in this future day, its influence will span the whole world. As the angel says here, this great city is the city which reigns over the king's of the earth, casting wide influence over the globe. Even in our own day, we use expressions like Wall Street and Madison Avenue. These represent real and actual streets, yet they also represent a system that extends beyond those streets and spans the globe. And that's exactly what this angel is saying here. This city of Babylon is a city of enormous power that will have a ruling influence over all the nations of the world in this future day until the Antichrist and his kings are done with her and destroy her before they themselves are destroyed by God. Well, John's going to have more revealed to him regarding the fall of Babylon in chapter 18. Come back next Sunday, and we will learn about that as we study through Revelation chapter 18. And we'll stop here for today and just contemplate for a moment this level of judgment that is revealed here against this harlot. In the first part of this chapter, this great harlot city of Babylon will seem to have a happy relationship, a happy alliance with this beast. In fact, she's being carried by him as if he is her beast of burden who does her bidding. But in the end, we see that this beast is the one who really holds the power. And when he's done using her to fulfill his purposes, he will hate her and destroy her. And this is the way it's going to be for everyone and anyone who enters into alliance with the beast. The beast will merely use them to accomplish his own ends. And then after he has done that, he will disregard them like a piece of trash, just like he does here in this chapter with the great city of Babylon. 
And this is the way the devil is with people. The devil may play humble and nice with you for a while and act like he's just merely helping you to achieve some desired end of yours. But in the end, he will rise up and he will destroy you because the devil has no love in his heart for you. He hates even those who do his bidding. But this is not how Jesus is with his church which is the bride of Christ. Jesus came to the church when the church was filthy and ugly, and he loved her and washed her and tenderly cared for her and then beautifies her with his love over time, and he remains forever faithful to his people, to his bride, the church. And this is how Jesus is with everyone whom he saves when he enters, when Jesus enters into a covenant alliance with a soul whom he saves, Jesus is forever faithful to that soul. He won't use and abuse them and then throw them away. Some of you know what it's like to be used and abused and then discarded. Jesus does not do that with his people. He will never come to hate his people and cast them aside and destroy them with fire. Anyone who ever comes to him, he says, I will never, I will never, I will never cast you aside. Think about how Jesus loved his messed up disciples. He loved them even when they were selfishly arguing over which of them was the greatest in the kingdom. Even when they were being ugly, even after they all fell away from him and abandoned him on the night of his arrest, even after Peter denied him three times, even uttering a curse and an oath, swearing that he did not know who Jesus was. Jesus, even through all of that and on the other side of that, still loved them. And he still loves them to this day, loving them in heaven for all of eternity. And he loves you in the same way if you have believed in Jesus. If Jesus has saved you, he will never become disgusted with you. And he will never abandon you. You will never be ghosted by Jesus. You will never be devoured by him on your best days or on your worst days. And this should mean a lot to us as Christians because we know what we deserve for our sins, right? Both our sins before salvation and our sins after salvation. But as Dane Ortland says in his book, Gentle and Lowly, and I quote, we, we naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, and then giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. He says, that's what we imagine. But he goes on to say, this high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. He cannot bear to hold back. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do for those he calls his own. 
This is how Jesus is toward those who are a part of his bride. He loves us to the uttermost. He has entered into a covenant with us and he keeps his covenant with his people forever. The Antichrist may abandon Babylon, but Jesus will never abandon his people. And guys, it's the knowledge of such an amazing and loving Savior that literally breaks the spell of Babylon over us, right? And it changes us. Rather than wanting to walk in self-sufficiency and human effort, we come to prefer to walk in his grace and mercy. Rather than walking according to our own will, we come to prefer walking according to his will. And rather than living for our own puny glory, we prefer instead to live for his glory. And it's only the love of Jesus that could change us to be like this, which is why I call upon everyone in this room to believe in Jesus this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that everyone in this room is here by divine appointment. I thank you for bringing them here and for their willingness to come and be attentive. Pray that you would bless each soul for being here this morning. The stakes are so high. Those who live for themselves and their own glory rather than believing in you will have such a high price to pay and have nothing but eternal regret and unrelenting torment when your grace and salvation was sitting there so available for them to simply humbly take and receive. And if you do nothing else for those who are gathered here today, Lord, I pray that you would just pour out upon every person this deep spirit of humility where we see our bankruptcy, we see our brokenness, and we happily come running to you and say, Lord Jesus, I want the salvation that you have accomplished for me. I want to walk in your grace and mercy. I want to live for your will, not my own. And I want to live for your glory and not my own. For us as believers, Lord, I just, like, going through this passage, I'm just thinking of ways that I don't live the way that I should. In light of all of these heavy realities, some glorious and some deeply unsettling and I just pray that you would remove the scales from my eyes and the eyes of all believers in this room Lord that we would see as we ought to see and that what we see would change us and above all Lord don't just help us to see this beast don't just help us to see this harlot help us to see you Jesus as the one utterly beautiful and faithful who knows how to treat his people right for all of eternity. You are a good savior and what is not to love about a savior like you.
We say these things to you, Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.